there's some artists which are an acquired taste where you actually have to really work at it. And then there are other artists where it's much easier. And I've often said that I look for a bloody nose, sometimes a punch in the stomach, but I think that's the emotional reaction. It doesn't have to be you know, razors that are actually cutting you. It can be the emotional reaction. Welcome to Collect Wisely, an ongoing series of podcasts in which we sit down with people who care deeply about art to discuss their passion for collecting. Before we begin our interview, I'd like to share our vision for Collect Wisely. This is an initiative we've wanted to do for quite some time, in which we question the nature of collecting and connoisseurship in the 21st century, and through doing so, hope to inspire a new generation of collectors and individuals committed to making a vital and meaningful investment in our common cultural future. My name is Sean Kelly, and I have had a gallery in New York since 1991. Each Collect Wisely episode will bring you personal stories from the perspective of an individual collector, where we delve into their passion for collecting, what drives them and what inspires them. Today, we're very happy to be speaking with Jay Tomlinson Hill. Tom currently serves on the boards of the Metropolitan Museum of Art and the Friends of the High Line, amongst many other organizations. The collection Tom and his wife Janine have assembled over the years is particularly wide ranging, encompassing works from the Renaissance and Baroque periods to contemporary art and one of the largest groups of Christopher Wall paintings in private hands, which he recently exhibited in Hong Kong. Welcome, Tom. Sean, it's great to be here. Well, we're very, very pleased to have you here for uh, the beginning of our Collect Wisely podcast series. And I'd like to kick it off by a very obvious question, but starting at the beginning. What was the first artwork you ever purchased and do you still own it? Well, the first artwork was a photograph that I purchased when I was at Harvard College, and I had been hired as a photographer for the Hasty Pudding. My real love was writing for the Harvard Lampoon, but they didn't really have an opportunity for photography because we farmed out all the photography. But when I was doing a exhibition for the Hasty Pudding, I had a chance to meet this amazing photographer who worked at the Carpenter Center at Harvard, and I bought one of his photographs, and I said, boy, this is a fun thing to do. I still have that photograph. So it wasn't because somebody famous, it was just somebody not. that you... No, it was you, just somebody I liked. He was a teacher. Right. And you've still got it. I still have it. It's the foundation of the collection. Well, I don't know about the foundation, <laughs> but you have to take risks. Well, you've certainly proved that uh, you've done that in, in your collecting career. I mean, when we started thinking about Collect Wisely, you were absolutely the first person I wanted to talk to because the breadth of the collection is, is really extraordinary. And, and I think that it is all based on a meticulous eye and on connoisseurship, which is a rather wonderful concept that we don't talk enough about these days. But if I was to say to you, what does connoisseurship mean to you? How would you characterize or analyze what that means? Well, I spent a lot of time reading different collections and how they've been formed. And whether it's Gene Thaw's you know, seminal book collections, Reflections of a, uh, of a Collector, or uh, some of the writings of Ronald Lauder in terms of how he's thought about collecting. 
I think it starts with a love of an object and then a fascination with understanding how the object was created, getting inside the head of the artist, understanding the work in the context of the period of time, then doing research on where that artist stood in relation to what was going on more broadly in that context. And it can be contemporary, it can be in the Renaissance, it can be Greek and Roman, doesn't matter. But understanding where that artist fit, and then coming to terms with the growth of the particular artist's work. And often, early on, an artist will experiment will try different things and then over time will evolve. And one of the things particularly with artists post-World War II that we've collected is we look for each decade did the artist continue to reinvent themselves and whether it's Warhol or Christopher Wool uh, or any other artists that we've collected in depth, there is an evolution. And so trying to understand an early work versus a mid-career work versus a later work. And then ultimately, trying to come to terms with what is great. Because artists, typically prolific artists, produce a lot of work. I think one of the reasons that Picasso has probably the greatest market capitalization is, you know, along with Warhol, is because he did so much work. As, yeah, as did Andy, the factors. Whether it's the Maryland series, there are some Marylands better than others. And so the question is, can you actually develop an eye to make a judgment about what is good and what is great? And do you, do you and Janine do that equally? Do you do that singularly? Do you rely on other people's opinion for that? How have you educated your eye to the point where you are comfortable being out there making those decisions? Well, you always want collaboration. You always want advice. And so I will frequently do the research around an artist, around a period, around uh, different types of work. Uh, invariably, I want Janine's point of view on what she thinks. And I uh, have to say, you know, she has, in some instances, you know, decided to veto a work of art I wanted to buy uh, a Warhol electric chair when uh, both our daughters were at home and Janine said I would prefer not to have an electric chair. Wait till our youngest is off at college and then you can get your electric chair. So I, I let that one pass and then I ultimately got an electric chair when our youngest was in college. So frequently what you have to do is start with an idea. and. Early on, when we were choosing the eight artists that we were going to collect post-World War II in depth, I came up with my list of eight. Janine came up with her list of eight. And why eight? I said, well, you know, I want a handful. I want, you know, to concentrate. My definition of concentrate is to have at least four major works of the artist. I don't want to have one of each. I want to actually make a decision about which artists mean the most to us. And so I compared my list with Janine's. There was an amazing amount of overlap. Mm. And then because we're very close to Peter Marino, I got Peter's view of his eight. You know, Warhol was on all eight. 
You know, so was de Kooning, so was Twombly. Francis Bacon was on Peter's and on mine, but not on Janine's, and Janine got to love Bacon. But I think it all started with an idea and then research, which is what I typically do. I then go to get as much advice as I can around different areas of an artist's career. Uh, I'll speak to the dealers who've dealt. I'll speak to museum people. You know, I've been fortunate enough to be involved with any number of different museums. Uh, at one point I was on the board of the Whitney. I was chairman of the Hirshhorn. If you wanted a judgment about Francis Bacon, you had to speak to Jim Demetrian, who did the first yeah. retrospective of of Bacon's work. Well, the great in the director States. of the Hirschhorn Museum who trained a whole generation of curators. Well, he trained Neil Benezra, yeah. he, tra he trained yeah. any number yeah. of really talented people who've gone on and done great things in the art world. But if you wanted a judgment of, around what was a great Bacon, you had to speak to Jim Demetria. And so I talked to conservators, I talked to other collectors. I have never other than really early on uh, where you know, I used a former curator to form a specific judgment about an artist that I didn't know, and this was after the curator had left working in the museum, where I decided I was going to pay the curator a certain amount of money for uh, a particular point of view. I've never used an art advisor, but I have profound relationships with people who are in the dealing business. Do you lament the rise of, of the art advisor in the sense that, um, you know, you have a class of people who are having their taste and their judgment informed by third parties? I don't at all. I, in fact, I think an art advisor can play a very useful role in doing a couple of things. And first, educating uh, a collector about a given artist. I think an art advisor can also create access to work, uh, particularly in the secondary market. I think an art advisor can also help establish a relationship with a dealer. But I think there comes a point where the collector has to have an independent voice and the art advisor's role can only go so far, and then it's up to the collector to make a decision about whether they love an artist, whether they want a given object in their collection, and you can't rely upon an art advisor to make the decision about what is good and what is great. You have to internalize that and make a decision yourself. Your mother was was an artist and so you grew up around a painter you grew up around somebody making and my making, sister making work well. okay and your sister so you grew up in, grew up in a very creative household um if i was to ask you the moment when you knew you were a collector can you identify can you identify that as a specific moment or a period i never actually liked the word collector because it, it kind of implies something that is stuffy and something that is not 
available to a broader group of people. And early on, I've said, if I'm lucky enough to be able to buy a great work of art, I want to make it available to others. And so we lend everything if, in fact, it's not too fragile to travel. You know, if there's a bacon show, we'll lend our bacon. Same thing with Picasso, de Kooning. And I think it's really important to have what I would characterize as a democratic view where art was made to be seen. One of the reasons we're creating a foundation is to make the art available to a broader group of people. And I, I always resisted the title of collector because it implies kind of a rarefied air and, you know, you know is there a Is there distance, a better description? Distance. I think it's, you know, an individual who loves objects and who wants to, you know, understand, you know, why an object has been created and where the object fits into a broader context. Uh, that's why we like to create a dialogue, both in our home and when we had our show of Renaissance bronzes at, at the Frick. Frick. Yeah. You know, we had them in dialogue, yeah. you know, with other post-World War works of art. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that you've, you've spoken to is that you almost had a program for this. I mean, you, you sat down and decided, there were, you know, what was the list going to be? There were going to be these eight artists that you were going to collect. Um, but I had no idea I'd be able to do it. You know, I think it's a little bit like when you start a business, you have to have a strategic plan. You have to have a series of goals. But it's that, a very deliberative pro process that you've gone through. I mean, most people, I don't know if most people are actually that focused and that organized about it. They tend to just collect. Um, but you've been very focused on how you've organized your... Um, your very deliberative approach to, to, to creating a collection. And it's one of the great collections, uh, which is very peripatetic. And, and it has this absolute laser-like focus on quality. And I, I really wonder where that came from. Was it always there or was it something that you've developed? Well, I think uh, based on my business experience, I always wanted to be with excellence. I wanted to be with partners and you know, people I worked with who have an idea of excellence and they share that idea. I never wanted to be involved in any organization that was not an excellent organization. One of the reasons that Blackstone has been so successful is those of us who were partners at Lehman Brothers realized the flaws in the culture at Lehman Brothers. And Steve Schwarzman and Pete Peterson early on said, what we're going to do is avoid the mistakes of all of our former colleagues and partners from Lehman Brothers and create an organization that is different. And I've tried to apply that same principle to collecting, which is to actually try to find those works that really appeal to me emotionally so that when I stand in front of them, I have an emotional reaction. And that means you spend a lot of time looking. You constantly go to museums, you go to exhibitions. When you're at people's homes, you look at the art and you really try to understand. And are you sleuthing things? Are you acting like a, a sort of private detective, hunting Absolutely. things down around I've, the world? Absolutely. I've actually had at any given moment 
you know, offers on works of art that are not for sale, but I know who owns them and they would fit into our collection. And I've had one standing offer for 15 years and the person that owns this work of art is getting along in age. And at some point I might be able to buy it. But uh, I had identified this work over 15 years ago and you know, if it ever comes up, I will buy it. And so there's some things that you just you know, want and because it fits into the broader collection. But I think too, you have to be flexible and sometimes you go down a path and I like a dialogue and sometimes a work of art just doesn't work in the context. So we had two Ellsworth Kellys and I love Ellsworth Kelly. I think he's an amazing artist, but in competition with de Kooning and Twombly and Bacon, it just didn't work. So I almost needed a separate room of Ellsworths. And I said, I can't do that. Same thing, you know, I bought this amazing Rothko and the Rothko was in our front hall, looked amazing, but I couldn't come up with another three Rothkos to have the full complement of four. And it wasn't sufficient that it stood alone? I mean, it was necessary to have this dialogue or that's part of the strategy of the collection that you want to have this depth? I want to have the depth and in retrospect, I probably shouldn't have sold the Rothko because just like with the two uh, Picassos we have, they could stand alone. And so I probably made a mistake, but at the time, I said, you know, I have two Bacons, I'm going to sell the Rothko and buy another two Bacons. And so I could have the four. And so, but I think you almost have to go through making mistakes. I mean, I just was reminded uh, you know, uh, about Peter Marino. You know, he had his collection of Renaissance bronzes on view at the Wallace collection. And to Peter's credit, you know, he had bought a bronze that wasn't right. It was actually a sand cast, uh, it was a fake. And he had it in the show as an example of what he'd learned right. from having Which is fantastic. a bronze. So he was willing to share that. Yeah. And it, it takes a big person yeah, yeah. to say, hey, I made a mistake yeah. here. I bought a fake. Yeah, I, I once asked Leo Castelli um, what, it, what it was he, he most regretted during his career. And his answer was very succinct. He said, it's the things I didn't buy, which I thought was a wonderful, I mean, that's a prototypical collector's answer to that question. And I thought it was a wonderful uh, commentary on his voracious eye and appetite for artists that he loved and collected. Well, if you have a conversation with Warren Buffett, all he wants to do is talk about the things he didn't do the deals he didn't make and you know essentially not mistakes but what could have been different he doesn't want to talk about the successes he wants it's in part it's a retrospective of you know have i learned something and the notion of continuous learning because you only improve if you're constantly saying let's evaluate what we did the decisions we made, could we have made better decisions? 
You've previously stated that the idea of buying art for investment makes no sense. Um, your statement addresses one of the core values that we are focused on in, in, in these conversations in Collect Wisely, uh, which is collecting out of, of, of a position of passion. And can you identify what it is that drives you and your passion for collecting to an impetus, to a person, to a historical moment, to a mentor? I know you've had incredible mentors. In, in your in your life in terms of advice about the collection. Is there any person that stands out as having given you a particular impetus and focus for your passion for for focusing on collecting in, in such a particular manner? I think it all goes back to my parents and uh, my mother is an artist. My father uh, was a partner with uh, William A.M. Burden and Bill Burden as you know, was the former president of the Museum of Modern Art. And when we would go to Mr. Burden's home at 825th, you know, we would see the Brancusi uh, bird. Uh, we would see uh, the bacon uh, pope that Jim Demetrian bought for Des Moines. You know, we would see these amazing works of art. And I actually would listen in on conversations that uh, Bill Burden would have with my father about how he thought about putting a collection together and and I and he had uh, multiple works of art by the same artist and so that was I would say instructive and inspirational but I, I wouldn't say that there's any one person I think it's an accumulation of relationships where uh, I mean, I mentioned Jim Dimitrin, uh, but there have been any number of other key players. I mean, Neil Benezra, Richard Armstrong. I mean, Richard and I have had endless conversations about Christopher Wool. And, you know, he bought any number of wools when he was at the Carnegie, and then he insisted that the Guggenheim have the first major retrospective of Christopher, and then that went to the Art Institute. So I think it's any number of people, but I think what you have to do is make judgments about who shares your views about a given artist, who shares your views about uh, what is the history of art, where a given artist fits into a collection, uh, and every single artist that I've ever talked to, and one thing except for Bacon, all the artists that we collected among the eight were living. So de Kooning, alive, I knew him. Twombly, I knew him. Andy, he used to hang out at Harvard in the 60s, I knew him. Lichtenstein uh, was alive when I was buying his, his works of art. Mark Rochon, obviously Christopher. Sure. Uh, they're all alive, and uh, or were alive, and the opportunity to talk to them uh, and to actually try to get inside their heads about how they have been influenced by, in the history of art, but also what they're trying to accomplish. Well, you're, you're actually somebody who has spoken very eloquently on this topic of actually liking 
to spend time with the artists, liking to be in touch with the artists, liking to pick their brains in a way. Um, but equally, I know collectors who don't want to meet the artists at all. They want to be, they want to have some distance and some separation from the artists. What is it about that connection for you that's that's comfortable or or uh, that that uh, you know makes you that pulls you into the work? Well, I think it starts with the artists that we collect in depth. Post World War Two, we have every single publication that has ever been written about the artist, every single exhibition catalog, every single interview, and I've read them. So if you spend the time to read the catalogs. If you spend the time to read interviews, I mean, David Sylvester's interviews with Francis Bacon are eye-opening. If I'd had a chance to meet Bacon, why not take advantage of it? Absolutely. Well, I actually did know Bacon when I was <laughs> but, much younger as a curator. I mean, you might learn something. Well, I did learn quite a lot. <laughs> None of it we can't talk about on air. <laughs> <laughs> you might learn something about art. You might learn something about life. You certainly learned something about life around Francis and Lucy. Um, so, if I asked you to characterize your particular approach to collecting, um, you know, would you, in one word, would, would you describe it as intuitive or intellectual or emotional or analytical? Um, or another word, for instance. I mean, I think... I think it's all of the above. It starts with seeing an object and saying, this is really interesting. Then you go into the research phase. You do the analysis of, well, why did this particular object interest you? Then you put the artist in some kind of a context. Is, is, it, is it the shock of the new for you? I mean, is, is there, to, to sort of paraphrase Robert Hughes, but is there, is there a moment that something intrigues you and it starts tickling away at your imagination, your intellect, and it won't let you go? Because, I mean, a lot of the work that you're talking about, and I know that you also are collecting very young artists as well, and groups, yes. uh, groups of artists with the same rigor and the same precision. Um, is is there is there a moment at which it crosses over from being interest to obsession and there's something about the work that just won't let you free of it well i think we're all uh somewhat obsessive compulsive if you're actually spending the time to actually read about uh you know an artist and, and the work that they're doing but i think there's a moment where you connect and sometimes it takes time because often artists are difficult to actually either understand or come to terms with what they're trying to do. And I think, you know, Christopher Wool is an example, which is a lot of his work is heavy lifting. He doesn't make it easy for the viewer. And, uh, you know, starting with the text pictures or, or even before that, stamps, uh, they are hard, uh, you know, often black and white, often aggressive. Uh, you know, it's all about process. He doesn't make it easy for the viewer. And so sometimes it requires spending 
a lot of time thinking about the art. There are other artists, and when we first bought our Rothko, you say, boy, this is so pleasing. And I think that's one of the reasons that probably today our uh, Rothko is such a popular artist around the world, is that he's very pleasing to behold and to, and to watch. So w would you say within the collection, I mean, certainly with somebody like Bacon and- It's rough. You've, you've spoken to, you know, the point with Christopher Wall. And de um, and, it can be very Ducuni. rough. I mean, is, does it, for you, does it require a little sand in, in the, the oyster to make the pearl? No, because there are other artists like Bryce Martin, you know, we collect in depth, where it's lyrical and beautiful and very reminiscent of mosaics and going back to you know, Greece and Pompeii. Or, you know. So it doesn't have to be in your face. I mean, I've often said that I look for a bloody nose, sometimes a punch in the stomach, but I think that's the emotional reaction. It doesn't have to be you know, razors that are actually cutting you. It can be the emotional reaction. Which tends to come first? Does the seduction come first or does the emotional kind of gut punch come first in your experience? Again, I don't think you can generalize because there's some artists which are an acquired taste where you actually have to really work at it. And then there are other artists where it's much easier. And I mean, for instance, Bob Gober, I don't think makes it easy for you. And you, you have to actually spend a lot of time Tom, do you think that your, your position and what you're talking to in terms of connoisseurship and scholarship and research and really getting into and under the skin of, of an artist over a long period of time with a lot of reading and a lot of analysis is almost exactly antithetical to a moment in culture that we live in now with art fairs and um, a lot of quick decisions being made about collecting in, in a very public way. Do you, do you spend a lot of well, time at art fairs going to, to, to look at art? I mean, it almost seems to me that would be completely antithetical to your... Well, I will go to art fairs. I was just in Hong Kong and Basel was there and I did walk around uh, twice. And if you like to look, you can see what is on the walls and often what you'll find at art fairs is not the best because often at art fairs you're dealing with newcomers who maybe aren't as sophisticated so you get a judgment about what dealers are trying to sell at what point in time but anytime there's art on the walls you learn something and i don't happen to go to art fairs because it's not a good use of my time I used to go to Basel in Switzerland because this was in the 90s. You actually could have a chance of seeing something that was great that you wanted to buy. Now, because everyone knows what I'm interested in, I either get calls ahead of time or I have people on the vetting committees who can actually tell me. And so I have an equal shot if there's something great at a fair that is in my sweet spot to be able to compete even though I'm not there. And often, I mean, I, you know, I bought uh, Medardo Rosso from Basel in Switzerland, where I, I didn't actually see it. I knew the work and had seen it before in an exhibition, but I didn't actually see it on the stand. 
and I bought it. Apart from the work that you were talking about earlier, which you've had the standing offer out on for over a decade, is there one work that got away from you that you've always regretted? Absolutely. Are there many of them or are there, is there a particular one? No, absolutely. You know, Ferragusto, Lucy Michelinus uh, was selling this amazing Ferragusto and I saw it and, you know, I wanted to buy it then and there. This was in the 90s. And I didn't know enough about Twombly. And, uh, you know, I needed to do my work. And by the time I went back, it was gone. So I hadn't done my work. And that never happened again because I didn't own Twombly at that point in time. If I'd known more, I would have seen it and been, been able to react. But when the chalkboard came up that we now own, I knew how great it was. It was the companion to the one that Nicola, a uh, size partner, sold uh, at Christie's, set the record for Twombly. And when that came up, I knew it immediately, and I said, uh, I'm not going to let this get away. This fall, you're going to open the uh, Hill Art Foundation in Chelsea, and a portion of your collection will be on public view. Do you feel a, a great sense of responsibility to make that material public and available and share it, and in terms of your stewardship of the, of, of the work? Well, as I mentioned, whenever we have a work of art that is requested to be on loan, we lend. The advantage of Chelsea, and particularly, as you mentioned before, I'm on the board of the High Line, the space that we have, which is the third and fourth floor of a building, from the High Line, you're going to be able to see into our space. So eight million people going up and down the High Line are going to be able to look in to our big windows, see art, perhaps be curious, and then come down. Uh, it is open to the public. And just as I benefited by growing up in New York and being able to go to the Frick, being able to go to the Metropolitan Museum, being able to go to the Noya, and Ronald has created an amazing gift to New York City, I want to do the same thing, but on a much smaller scale. And will that showcase the breadth of the collection? You'll show the, the Renaissance material as well as modern, as well as contemporary? We're going to have an exhibition program once a year, starting in the fall. We're going to have, and it'll probably run about eight months, an exhibition. We're starting with all 21 of the Christopher Wool works that we own. And just as the prelude was in Hong Kong, where we sent 15 of those works. The second show will be probably from our collection, but it doesn't have to be. And just as we showed post-World War II artists with Renaissance bronzes at the Frick, I have an open mind about mixing, but I have a number of artists, living artists, that I've collected, whom I've collected in depth, and I could see a show of all of works that we have. You know, Glenn Furman did a really interesting show yeah. of five women artists. Yeah. You know, we collect three of the women in that show, yeah. and uh, I could see, including one of your artists. In dialogue with Ellsworth Kelly. Yes. Yeah, which was a, 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 a beautiful show, actually. But that's very much how you live with your work. I mean, you, you might have a, a 
sort of 13th century altarpiece alongside a Renaissance bronze, alongside Ned Rocher or alongside a Twombly. I mean, it's very much how you surround yourself with these things, these objects um, of excellence, and it's how you like to live. So can you, can you recreate that kind of intimacy in a more public setting, do you think? Absolutely. We're going to have shows where we have what I would characterize as old master paintings in juxtaposition with modern contemporary artists. Are there exhibitions that you particularly want to, to bring to fruition uh, out of the collection? Well, in my study uh, in New York, in our home, I have a number of Francis Bacon's in dialogue with Rubens. There has never been a show looking at the influence of Rubens on Bacon. There have been shows where Rembrandt and Bacon, Picasso and Bacon, Velasquez and Bacon, but never Rubens. And I think there are some overlapping ideas. As you know, both Catholics, although Bacon was fighting his whole life to deny his Catholicism, flesh, use of figures, and uh, also structure in a painting. And I think it would be fun to juxtapose you know, the four Bacons that we have with the five Rubens that we have. No, be f I, I'd, I'd definitely come to see that exhibition. I'd love to see it. Can I ask you a further question following on from that? Because it's particularly interesting. It's sort of the media I grew up around was very dominated by Bacon, Freud, Arbach, Kossoff, the four you know, great uh, visceral painters of the mid-20th century. Why isn't Freud in the collection for you? What doesn't work there in comparison with Bacon that does work? Early on, I made a choice where I wasn't going to go with both Bacon and Freud. They knew each other. Over time, they grew apart. I think Lucian was very jealous of Bacon's great success. And I think that when I look at a Lucian Freud, I tend to think there's a repetitious aspect where there's almost a formula around his work. And again, my measurement of what creates a great artist is the constant act of reinvention. And Bacon, every decade, came up with either new ways of presenting or would actually echo different themes. But to me, it was constantly taking risks. And I viewed Lucian in a curious way as more conservative, not taking the kinds of, of risks that, uh, that Bacon was. Well, he was certainly an establishment figure from, from the outset and had a lot of advantages that that you know is famously given the keys to the National Gallery, so he could go in after hours and prowl the galleries in you know after dinner at night on his own, and given all sorts of privileges that came out of his background that Bacon really worked against his entire life, and denied his entire life. But um, I think there's also a spontaneity to Bacon's work. Bacon would work very fast. David Sylvester talks about in the 1940s. Bacon would blindfold himself and would actually practice brush strokes blindfolded so that he had, like Picasso, very quick hand. 
Freud, on the other hand, would often spend four or five months, you know, redoing, redoing, and it was a little bit like de Kooning in, you know, the late 40s, early 50s when he was working on his women, where he would spend a year on a woman, you know, heavily incised. And I almost feel that with Freud, it's highly studied, it's, you know, very, I would say, overwrought, overworked, whereas in Bacon, I think there's a freedom so do you think, and, and a spontaneity. Do you think there's a sort of self-consciousness to that? Well, without doubt, what Freud was thinking about was, you know, the psychological aspect, and there's almost a self-consciousness, whereas with Bacon, you know, he didn't care. You know, he would, no, it's, he, I he mean, it's told, viscerally intuitive. He, he, he would paint the way he felt, and sometimes they weren't successful, but when he got it right, they are just so dazzling. If you were starting off as a young collector now, in 2018, uh, what advice would you give to your younger self, setting out to engage and indulge your passion for objects as a collector? It's pretty simple. Look at as much art as you can get your eyes around. And whether it's exhibitions, museums, talk to as many people as you can about what you're interested in. And it's never too late when you stop to think. You know, we went down the path of Renaissance bronzes because in the mid-90s, I didn't want to go there in terms of provenance issues on Greek and Roman. But right now, I'm actually thinking about Greek and Roman because it's now all out there in terms of provenance. And you, know, you either have safe provenance or you don't. If you don't, you don't go near it. But it's never too late. And just think about Gene Thaw, how many different collections, Native American you know, drawings, Renaissance sculpture, he was so diverse. But it starts with looking and then spending as much time as you can with the art. So I have one final question for you about collecting. And that is, if you could choose a single artwork from any period in time, um, from anywhere in the world to live with, but you could only have one artwork, what would it be and why? Oh my goodness. Uh... Fantastically unfair question. No, it's, <laughs> it's totally fair. I mean, one of the games I play with my two daughters and with Janine, when we go into any given you know, work, at, let's say an exhibition, I say you only get one. Which one do you take home? Or you go to a museum in a given gallery, you, you only get one. It used to be the Bellini at the Frick St. Francis, but now actually spent more time. And if I could pick one work of art now that I would live with, I think it would be Pontormo's The Visitation. And the good news is The Visitation is coming to New York. It's going to be in an exhibition at the Morgan Library, and it's going to be at the Getty. Uh, the show is opening at the Uffizi. We are lending our Pontormo to that show, which is going to be paired with the Getty Halberdier. But 
if I could have one picture now, it would be the visitation. So should we be alerting the directors of the museums that, that uh, you might be lurking there and no, it's not something for, might disappear? Unfor unfortunately, it's not for sale. <laughs> but, uh, you, can, you can still say it's a great work that you wish you could live with. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, when I think about connoisseurship, when I was thinking about, uh, and we were talking about this series, Tommy, the first person that came to mind, because I have seen your collection uh, or parts of it in various different manifestations, including the great Renaissance bronze shirt, the Frick. And I regard you as somebody who has a laser-like focus on, on connoisseurship and collecting. And I'm incredibly grateful to you for sitting down with us today and discussing that, and also uh, thankful that we were able to get you to be the first person to do this, to launch Collect Wisely, the podcast. And so thank you very much for your time. Well, thank you, Sean. And I think if you could leave with one thought, which is don't be afraid to make mistakes. Don't always believe what you hear. You have to go with your gut. Only buy what you like. And at the end of the day, you have no idea whether what you buy is going to go up in value. But you can be very careful so that what you buy doesn't go down. And I think it doesn't have to go up, but you never want to buy a work of art where you buy it and then the next day or the next year or the next three years, you run the risk that it's worth half of what you pay. And I think you know, if you keep those thoughts in your mind, you can have an enormous amount of fun. Great advice for collecting wisely. Thank you. Thanks, Sean. We're delighted to have featured Tom Hill on the inaugural Collect Wisely podcast. The Hill Art Foundation will open in Chelsea in the fall of 2018. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Collect Wisely can be found on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Overcast, and Google Play. You can also find our episodes on our YouTube page. Just search Sean Kelly Gallery. Please be sure to subscribe to get the freshest episodes when they release. And if you really like the show, please give us a review or drop a comment. Or you can email us at info at sky.com. You can also follow the Sean Kelly Gallery at SeanKellyNY on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Cheers. Thank you.